reason that we're here is that this is the fourth uh, annual Clement Attlee Memorial Lecture, um, which we're delighted that University College uh, agreed to host this series uh, when Ben Jackson and I came up with the idea uh, four, four years ago. Um, it always struck us as strange. I remember coming to Univ many, many years ago as an 18-year-old uh, on an open day uh, and seeing the portrait of Attlee uh, on the wall um, and always associated the college with Attlee. And Attlee speaks incredibly warmly of the college in his autobiography, uh, which is a wonderful book if uh, you haven't read it, called As It Happens. Uh, and in the book, he, he talks about the experience he had here at UK. Um, and so uh, we thought, given that we're so strong still in politics and in history, uh, we should uh, address uh, his memory by hosting a series of lectures which touch on the kinds of questions that Attlee was interested in. That is essentially the remit of the lectures. Uh, and we've, uh, our committee has been joined by Stephen Baskerville, who also used to be here at UNIV, now works for Citizens UK, uh, by Francis uh, O'Grady, the head of the TUC, who apologises that she can't be with us today. Uh, and by by Jake Robotham, our uh, new law fellow. Uh, and we've had an incredible successful series of events. So we had John Crennus for our first lecture, who talked on Attlee and the Romantic tradition. Uh, we then had Francis O'Grady talking about uh, worker participation in the firm. Uh, we had Rachel Reeves last year talking about the evolution of the social welfare state. And today, we're absolutely thrilled to have Arnie Graf, uh, who's come from the Industrial Areas Foundation in the United States, who's one of the leading community organizers, thinkers and, and actors in the world of community organizing, uh, and has been involved uh, in many, many amazing campaigns I'm sure he'll tell us about uh, for many years, uh, and who also came here uh, to the United Kingdom uh, to help think about uh, Labour Party renewal uh, when Ed Miliband was the leader of the Labour Party. The reason that Arnie was an ideal choice uh, for this lecture uh, is because, as many of you will know, Clement Attlee spent his early years, uh, while he was here at the college, engaging in what would now be described as community organising in the East End of London. Uh, and it was in that work, uh, crossing the boundaries between different communities, if you like, uh, seeing the ways in which different kinds of people uh, lived their lives, that he really found his uh, political conscience uh, and that motivated him to go on to lead the Labour Party and lead the government of 1945 to 1951. So community organising, as we now know, it runs deep in Atlee's soul. Uh, it's a crucial part of the identity uh, of, uh, of his legacy, if you like. Uh, and that's why we thought Arnie would be a terrific uh, speaker for us uh, to give this talk. Um, we also thought it uh, because Arnie is one of the true greats uh, of friendship in politics, which is something else that ran deep in Clement Attlee's uh, world, uh, which is that he's not just a great thinker and a great uh, actor in the political world, uh, but he's an incredibly generous-spirited person, as you will discover by listening to, to him tonight. So we're going to learn a lot. Uh, we're also going to uh, feel incredibly honoured and privileged to be here in his company tonight. Uh, so with no further ado, uh, I will introduce Arnie Graham. Thank you. Maybe I could uh, up here. We have to have the banner. They're the people that brought me over here. You know. Word from our sponsor. There you are. Word from our sponsor. Thank you, John. Ah, thank you. Uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd like to uh, one for one. When I found out it was a Clement Attlee talk, I was at the first one where John was giving credits. And I thought, boy, and John, I'm so erudite. Why are they asking me to come over here? I, I, I hope I don't disappoint. Um, but it's an honor. And it also uh, gave me uh, cause to have to read up on Clement Antley. Uh I only knew him you know, vaguely, beating Winston Churchill and you know, all of that. But uh, 
it seemed so apropos once I read uh, about him and his life uh, because of what uh, Mark said about him. Uh, I began to think of him more as a or community organizer than a social worker, although I guess that's what he was, his title was as a social worker. And I also appreciate any leader that can stay elected so many times. That, that you just don't see that anymore, especially in our country. They come and they go and they, we even have to deal with Donald Trump now, you know, so far away from Clement Atkins. Um, so I'm, 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 you know, greatly uh, appreciative because uh, I probably wouldn't have read up on him in his life uh, if I wasn't uh, asked to come here. Uh, before I begin, I'd just like to, a couple of acknowledgments. I'd like to acknowledge uh, John Denham as the person who's brought me here through the Southern Policy Center. And uh, he's been hosting me and we're friends from before and um, I'm trying to talk him back into going back into Parliament, but he won't do it, but uh, anyway. Um, but I, I want to thank him. I want to thank my good friend Mark. Mark became uh, a dear, dear friend. Uh, when you're my age, not that old, but you know, 72, you don't expect to find a lot of new friends in your life. You know, you've got your grandchildren and your family and all these other, and then you have a, a dear friend. And that's, uh, that's it's a wonderful thing. Um, to have happen to you. Uh, he's on his way. Uh, I also want to acknowledge uh, Morris Glassman who became, he and his family became uh, kind of my family here. Uh, and uh, the only problem with that is I always had to buy his children presents. But outside of that, <laughs> and they called me Uncle Arnie and then I had, a, you know, it's my, it's my birthday uncle, there's four of them, you know. And one of them came live with us for a while. You know, getting carried away here. Um, and lastly, uh, most of what I'll be talking about, I've learned with my colleagues in the Industrial Areas Foundation, which is the oldest and largest uh, network of community uh, organizations in the United States. Uh, and it's with my colleagues uh, and through our learned experience together and sharing uh, that I, you know, we together and I uh, developed uh, some of the things to be talking about. Uh, and lastly, uh, I want to thank, uh, even though it didn't last as long, there he is. See, I just gave you a shout out. Uh, and, uh, and lastly, I want to, he's not here, but I want to thank uh, Ed Miliband for having given me the opportunity. It didn't last as long as I thought it would. But, uh, I think I'd be escorted out of the country in the way I was. But, uh, I'm glad you're back. I, I'm glad you're letting me come back here, even though I'm an illegal immigrant, so I appreciate that. Uh, and mostly the staff and organizers of, uh, of the party, who I work you know, hours and hours and hours with. And they're a talented group of people uh, and very committed. Uh, so I'm going to start out by, by reading something from Sheldon Wallen. I don't know if you're familiar with him or read uh, about him or have read him. And this is from uh, a book that he wrote called The Presence of the, uh, uh, the, the, Presence of the Past. And his last name is W-O-L-I-N. And uh, maybe a little unusual for Oxford, I don't know. I'll start out by reading from Hebrew scripture, because that's what he did. Um, and I don't know how many people know the story of Abraham. And uh, he had a couple of kids. They were a problem like many kids, uh, Esau and uh, Jacob. And uh, Esau was the oldest, so he had the birthright. 
so this is from Genesis uh, 25, 29 through 34. Uh, I feel like I'm about to give a sermon. This is from Genesis. I'm not a theologian. Uh, Once when Jacob was boiling pottage, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red pottage, for I am famished. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Wolin goes on to then say, the birthright we have made, o- we have made over to our Jacobs is our politicalness. By politicalness, this is Wolin speaking, I mean our capacity for developing into beings who know and value what it means to participate and be responsible for the care and improvement of our common and collective life. To be political is not identical with being a part of government or associated with a political party. A political inheritance or a birthright is not something we acquire like a sum of money or a father's house, nor is it something we grow into naturally without effort or forethought. It is, not, it, it, is like, it is not like reaching the age of 18 and automatically being entitled to vote. It is something to which we are entitled, as Esau had been, but we have to make it consciously our own, mix it with our mental and physical labor, undertake risks on its behalf, and even make sacrifices. And that comes from the, his essay uh, that's uh, in the book, uh, The Presence of the Past. I'd, I'd recommend it to you. It's a really uh, interesting, interesting book. Um, it's interesting when he talks about politicalness as a birthright, uh, because uh, poli- in, in my experience, uh, my experience is uh, you know, from the United States, where I worked 48 years as an organizer, uh, not, it, not with anything to do with a political party. My only experience in political party has been two years that I spent from 2011 to 2013 with the Labor Party. I thought I'd try it out. I was old enough. But I've gotten my lesson. <laughs> I'm back in the United States. <laughs> um, politics and politicians have almost become uh, like a four-letter curse word uh, to many people. Uh, this has med- led many, like Esau, uh, to have abandoned their birthright. Uh, there are numerous reasons why this is so, and here are a few reasons, uh, from my perspective at least, that I think this has happened. First, uh, I would say, too much of what politics, too much of what people are exposed to in the name of politics, are one-minute bombardments, either at the door. I used to say to Ed, I think when we show up for one minute at the door, we're like a walking billboard. Hi, it's my name, Arnie Graff. I'm from the Labor Party. Are you a one, two, three, four, or five, a C2, a C5, or a C6, or a B1, or whatever all those codes were? If they were a one or a two, we would lock them down so that they could, you know, the person holding the board, if anybody done the walking, and uh, we, they would get phone called and bombarded then by uh, Twitter, Facebook, 
uh, YouTube, leaflets, nothing relational. All task, all transaction. Um, most of this comes at electoral campaign time, and not much goes on in between. And since you have so many uh, campaigns in this country every year, they're, you know, you're fighting for a council seat, a county seat, an MEP seat. I used to get dizzy with all the elections you have. Um, almost all of it is transactional, one minute, boom, boom, in your face, you know, asking you to do things. This activity uh, seeks to convince people, either to vote for the person you want, to get them to leaflet, to phone call, to door knock, and all of this is transactional. Nothing has to do with a proper conversation. Uh, all of this, uh, for the most part, at least in my experience here in the United States, uh, flows from a top-down process where the important decisions are made by the few and the implementation is left to the many. And as I mentioned last night, uh, John and I were at Winchester University uh, in a talk, uh, mostly people are treated like drones. And you know what a drone is, right? The drone is just a delivery system. It has no brain. How it gets directed is by a few people in some office, you know, uh, like in the United States, and 8,000 miles away, somebody gets bombed. But the drone is controlled by somebody in an office. They don't even see the people that it's killing. Right. So it has no mind of its own. Well, that's how I began to think about our work in the field. A small group of people made decisions, and then the membership and the organizers were thought about some way like drones. They were to deliver the message. Um, but they didn't have much input into the message, even though they had more social knowledge, many times I felt, than the people who were making the policy, because they were in the field. Um, you know, I have huge respect for many of the uh, people in the party, uh, and of particularly labor's organizers in the field. And I had the privilege, as I said, of working side by side with them hours upon hours. Um, the year 2013, I lived here every other month, so I was here for six months uh, during that year. And many are talented and committed, uh, but I can't count the number of times that organizers would complain to me and say, you know, we just don't have enough time to organize. And it was, that's interesting since your title is organizer. Um, and they don't have time because they are, uh, have so many tasks, administrative tasks, data entry. They go to numerous meetings, grievance settlements. I don't know if any of you had the pleasure of sitting in branch meetings, but you know, that was one of my punishments, I think. <laughs> um, and not just grievances that are constitutional, but grievances between people. Sam and Joe have been fighting for 20 years, they don't get along, and it's getting out of control because the other five people at the meeting are getting upset, and uh, they're sent in to, um, I'm, I'm over-dramatizing, but it's, it, 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 it's a truth. And the organizers spend time trying to get them to behave and get along well. Um, the average uh, uh, number of people, new people, that an organizer in the Labor Party, maybe in the same in the Tories, I don't know, but I would say the same thing for Obama did something a little different, but in the Democratic Party, uh, they average between meeting one and three new people a week. 
It's an interesting strategy to try to grow a party. You meet one person a week, new. How are you ever going to grow the party that way? Um, so 85% is task-driven, what they do. 15% is relationally driven, or in other words, they have 15% of their time to do politics. Because the basic, basic of politics is relationships. That's where it starts. That's where you're born with your politicalness, as uh, Walwin said. And that's dismissed. To develop it, to express it, you have to be talking to somebody, uh, not somebody coming at the door once a year asking you to do something. Uh, Dr. Charles Payne, in an excellent book called I've Got the Light of Freedom, uh, describes organizing as a slow, respectful work. Uh, slow, respectful work. Uh, in his book, he tells a story about Robert Moses, uh, a renowned organizer in the United States during the civil rights era in the 1960s in our country. And he was one of the best known organizers because he could somehow organize the most amount of people. And he describes uh, uh, what Robert Moses used to do. He was an African-American, he is an African-American, but he was from New York City, from Harlem, big city. And now he finds himself in a small town, black town, uh, in Mississippi. And although, you know, the color of skin is the same, the culture is so vastly different between Harlem, New York City, and, you know, Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, it doesn't matter the same color, the culture is 180 degrees different. So this is what Robert Moses used to do. He would walk into the area in the village, and no one knew him. The strange black guy. You know everybody, whether you're white or whatever, when you live in a small town. My wife is from a small town in North Carolina. Everybody's a cousin. You know, I don't know, they're all related. So I'm sorry, I said I was sorry I wasn't born here. You know, the cousins I was attracted to, but you weren't allowed to, you know, marry. <laughs> everybody. You would go to church and it was like, 900 people from three families. God bless you, you know. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, what Robert Moses would do is he'd walk into the town, there were dirt roads, because at that time, you know, the white government wouldn't do anything for African Americans. It was legal apartheid in our country. And um, he'd see some kids playing ball. But they're always playing in front of the house because no parks were built for these youngsters. There was no place to play, and it was all dirt. So they'd be out front kicking a ball or throwing a ball or whatever. And he'd watch for a while, and then he'd say, "Do you mind if I uh, if I play?" Okay. Now he knew that the mothers were all watching him from the window because this is a strange guy playing with their children, and you know he he saw them staring at him because if he did anything wrong they would come out and probably do whatever to him. Um, and when he was throwing a ball or kicking a ball he would purposely after a little while after he got the kids laughing throw the ball under the porch because all these were very poor people their houses were up on stilts and they're all wood so the ball would go under the house. Well He'd say, and the kids would say, I'll get the ball, Mr. Moses. No, 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 I'll get, I'll get, I'll get, I'll get. Okay. But of course, he wouldn't go just under the house. He would knock on the door and ask for permission to get the ball. Now, he knew that the mom was already knew where the ball was, but it looked like an accident. And he would introduce himself, 
and say, do you mind if I went under the porch to get the ball? And he would crawl under the porch and get the ball. And when he would come up, invariably, the mom would say, gee, you're all dirty. You want to come in and wash up? He'd say, oh, well, thank you. And then they would say, it's culture in the, su in the South. Uh, would you like a cup of uh, sweet tea, uh, iced tea? Thank you very much. And then they would begin a conversation. Who are you? Who are you? Which one is of your children? And blah, 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 blah. And that's how you went about organizing. The others tried to organize ideologically on race, and they got nowhere. And everybody started to try to figure out what does Robert Moses do to get 200 people from this small town to a meeting? Because people were scared to meet, right? You have the Ku Klux Klan, you know, that's a white terrorist, uh, and all this stuff. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, especially talk about voting. You know, that was, that was scary stuff. You could get many people in the civil rights movement were killed for trying to get people the right to vote or get themselves get the right to vote. Well, that's so far from the organizing that political parties do, and the nature and the understanding of the culture that he was in, and how you approach people. I'd say that he was doing politics. A lot of people would have said, God, he could have got to 10 more houses instead of crawling under there and having tea with that woman. Once he met with that woman in a small town, he'd learned after about 45 minutes who people in that town respected and who might be able to introduce him to that, to those persons. And that's what he did. Slow, uh, respectful work. He took the time to build relationships, the foundation of any kind of politics. Uh, he understood, as I have learned working uh, with my colleagues in the Industrial Areas Foundation, and as my, I've adopted as my colleague, Stefan, and Jess when she was uh, with us, that the most radical tool of politics is the individual relational meeting. <coughs> now, people to the left uh, disregard the Industrial Areas Foundation because they say it's just a lot of talking to people. You go around and you have these relationship meetings, how soft, you know. You're in these poor neighborhoods. Why aren't you, you know, you know, uh, mobilizing them around capitalism and all of that? And I often tell them, well, you know, I don't think that'll get us very far. Uh, my father loved capitalism. He had no money. And, uh, you know, he would always say to me, you know what the problem in our life is, son? We don't have enough money. <laughs> so he was, uh, he was uh, you know, he was a capitalist. And if you haven't had enough to eat, the way he grew up, you'd want money too. <laughs> but this individual meeting is one person meeting with one person, 30 to 45 minutes, to explore each other's interests, values, and see if you can ascertain a story uh, from them that uh, relates to why they think the way they do, why they value what they do, what their interests really are. So it doesn't start with you know, hey, my candidate, or we have a campaign in our organization to do housing and this and that. Will you join us? Can't you see how bad the housing is around here? Doesn't, it doesn't start that way. Uh, so you're trying to explore if you have some mutual interests and values, uh, you know, to see if you have some commonality to work on together. Do we have interests and values that we might want to work on together? And there becomes some loose bond 
when you've shared a story as an organizer, or uh, I call it an organizer, or even a candidate if they would take the time to do this, and the person that you're talking to. Uh, the person initiating the conversation, as I said, does not lead with his or her uh, ideology or a task I want you to do. Uh, he or she does not dominate the conversation. You listen more than you talk. Uh, you are trying to elicit a story that uh, you can, you know, that, that allows you to imagine what shaped this person. Right? All of us, all of you in this room, all of us, all human beings, have had uh, a series of founding and refounding stories. It could even have been a wonderful thing that happened to you, leads you down a road, or something that was very sad and tragic that leads you down a road. And you get an aha moment, or, and you take a direction. That was what the Civil Rights Movement as a 19-year-old 51 years ago was for me. I was headed into my father's business serendipitously. I got involved in the Civil Rights Movement, and my whole life changed. To the great dismay of my mother. Because the day that my brother got into medical school, I was in jail. And she couldn't figure out, what the hell? What the what are you, you're not going to be able to go to your brother's graduation? <laughs> I said, you're in jail. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Why don't you make a lot of money? And then if you feel badly about the poor people, the black people, give them some money. But first, you've got to get rich. But she had grown up on welfare, so she had a, she had a different view on life. Um, so... Uh, it, it's really about it, it's about relationships and as Stefan and Jess know in my world every organizer required to do 18 to 25 of these individual relational meetings a week plus whatever else they're supposed to be doing otherwise we have no social knowledge and we have no relationships and we're just driving around the community and saying look at this terrible housing you got to do something about it I went to the school it looks terrible right that's not to say that the mom or the dad doesn't care about what the school looks like, but there may be something else that's on their mind. Or they may have an idea about what they think that should be done about it. Um, so uh, it's about relationships and not ideology, or what you think is important that comes first. So it, what, what worries me about the, uh, the right and the left is that they already know how the world should be. Well, that's nice for them, uh, but uh, maybe they could engage somebody else and see what they think. Might not be a bad way to start. Um, and let me tell you, uh, you know, uh, a story. Again, a, st a personal story. Um, in 1976, uh, I went to San Antonio, Texas, to organize for the Industrial Areas Foundation. It was three years old. It had been formed and founded really well by a colleague of mine, uh, Ernesto Cortez. Uh, San Antonio is now the eighth biggest city in the country. At the time, it was the tenth biggest city in the country, so it's large. Um, it's, its majority population is Mexican-American, Texas near, being near the, you know, the border of Mexico. Almost 60% of the city is Mexican-American um, and uh, terribly discriminated against. In fact, the whole political system was set up to keep them out of any kind of power, say so. 
of the city council elections were at large. So if you were poor, you had no, you couldn't compete. Money is huge in our country for in politics. And if you're a working class Mexican American, how are you going to get the money to get on TV and block and all of that? You know, it's not going to happen. So there were two parties, not Democrat Republican, two local parties. They picked a ticket, right? Each party picked a ticket. And each party, there were 11 uh, council seats, each, and a mayor, each, each was elected separately. Each party picked two Mexican Americans, they picked them, one African American, and the rest were Anglo. White. And then they would run. And you could, that, that, those were going to be, but the, the Mexican Americans, either party that won, were totally beholden to the Anglo, to the white money structure. And they didn't, and they were at large, so they didn't even represent an area of the people. The area, so the people didn't have a representative to, you know, to talk to. For years and years and years, and I can go on about the various discriminations uh, that, that went on. They weren't allowed to vote. They were, they were like African Americans, right? They were, they were totally mistreated. After all, San Antonio was Mexico. And the, the insult of the, of, if you go to San Antonio, Texas, when you go on a tour, you're brought to the Alamo. I don't know if you know our history. The Alamo is where we defeated the Mexicans. And that's where they take people. But that's not feel very good to the Mexican-Americans, because that's where they got their land taken from them. But this is celebrated. We have John Wayne, when you walk in there, John Wayne, our cowboy in the movies. I don't know if you've some of you are young. But uh, remember him, he's, he's dead, thank God. But no, he's, uh, uh, does he get a big picture of John Wayne in there with his guns? Guns are blazing, pictures shooting Mexicans. Um, kind of odd, you know. Uh, and we're so culturally out of, out of balance, by the way, that when Gerald Ford was running for president, that's where he went to make his speech, at, you know, to try to get the Mexican-American vote in front of the Alamo. <laughs> he took a tamale. Oh, he took, you know what a tamale is? Something that's baked inside the husk of a corn. Well, you take the husk off and you eat. It's baked inside. He put a sombrero on, or somebody, some aide put a sombrero on his head. Nobody in San Antonio walks around with a sombrero. I've never seen a Mexican-American with a sombrero. And they gave him a tamale, which was hot. So you could see him. He's on national news, and he bites into it and starts to chew the the tamale, and he winds up spitting. It's a the husk. A national TV spits the husk out, and he says, "Boy, that was good." <laughs> he got about he got about three Mexican American votes, I think. Is what he did. <laughs> so everybody who had been trying to organize the Mexican American community had tried to do it around La Raza, race, where, you know, we're oppressed, we're Mexicans, we're brown-skinned, they don't wear sombreros, but we're brown-skinned, we speak Spanish, and, um, you know, La Raza, La Raza, well, everybody who I ever met there, I came in 76 to organize after my colleague went to Los Angeles to organize, and uh, everybody knew they were discriminated against. You know, you know, it didn't take a genius to know if you're Mexican American, you know, you were, you were kind of screwed. And you couldn't vote, you, could, you know, you were kind of messed up. 
uh, or they made it hard for you to vote. You could vote by then. And um, so that wasn't news to people, and everybody was angry about it because their children were in the lousy schools and so on and so forth. Ernie took a different tack. Everybody thought we were going to come in and organize around race, but more cleverly or somehow mobilize them around what's not right, all the white business owners and so on and so forth. Instead, he goes out and he does hundreds and hundreds of these individual meetings. <clears throat> not with activists. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to activists uh, at all. But not with activists. Parish priests. There's a lot of people there went to the church. Uh, different associations, neighborhood associations, which obviously were all Mexican-American because it was all segregated. And a whole slew of other kinds of civic organizations and mediating institutions that the people had organized themselves. They'd organized huge soccer leagues. They love football. I call it soccer. Football, your football. And um, people had organized it on their own. No one gave them money. And as poor as they were, they would raise the money for the uniforms for the kids and pay the referees and clean up the field, which was all messed up because there was no parks for them. And, you know, one fellow had like a network of 50 men who coached these teams. And, and when you went to a game, all the parents are out there, you know, with their kids and whatnot. And then there'd be cookouts and all of that. Uh, that's who we met with. And lo and behold, what he starts organizing around uh, is a problem with drainage. The city was built with no drainage. Because in Texas, you're not supposed, you can't tell anybody anything. So they built it without drainage. So, uh, now it's fine if you have enough money to build a sump pump for yourself, but it's not fine for all these poor people who don't have that money. Besides, they don't own the home, they're renting it anyway. If they do own it, they don't have the money to do a sump pump. And so it floods a lot there because it's heavy rains. So when the rivers uh, rise, they invariably lose four or five children. Uh, I mean, uh, are killed by floods, get caught up in flash floods because there's no drainage. You get these little gullies, and that rain washes over, and the kids get caught up in the gullies. And, and also, when you have your home, you, you, all of your furniture are up on cinder blocks. When I first went there, I couldn't figure out what kind of, what kind of uh, tradition is that? You know, it's like you need, I felt like I needed a ladder to get up on the couch, you know. What, well, that was, they kept the front door open and the back door open, so when the rains came, it ran through the house and it only ruined the floor, but not all the furniture. And that's how they lived. And they had outhouses, even a mile away from the big downtown, fancy, regentrified downtown. This is how 50% of the people were living. That's what he organized around. And as of today, uh, the organization has forced more than a billion dollars worth of infrastructure and nobody is left with an outdoor toilet and there's no flooding. They dig up the whole city, the organization forced the city to dig up the whole city because it got much worse as the wealthy people moved to uh, higher ground uh, north of San Antonio, the runoff became even more powerful. Right? You paved over the north side because it's hills, people liked it, it was pretty all Anglo, but the, the water became even more rushing down. Cops, more than any other of our organizations, changed the entire political culture of the city. Uh, helped elect the first Mexican-American mayor, Henry Cisneros, who eventually became the Secretary of Housing under Clinton. And the whole 
I'm not saying poor people are it's paradise, but but they're not getting flooded, and they can, you know, part of my language, you have to pee, you don't have to go outside. Um, and your kids aren't, therefore, and there's drainage. So therefore, there aren't always a lot of mosquitoes, and your children aren't picking up all kinds of, that's what people talk to him about. And he, he Mexican-American himself, would say to people, doesn't this make you angry? He said, of course, I grew up here. My father drove a truck for, for Pepsi-Cola. They, they screwed him, they, you know, because he was Mexican-American. They, you know, they, he never got a promotion. But, but what came out from people, what do you want tomorrow? You know, what's the first, I want to have my children not be in danger of coming home from school and getting swept up in a flood. I want these mosquitoes out of my house. I want to be able to take these blocks away and sit down and have a you know a proper meal, you know, not sitting up here and eating you know uh, at the table you know by plate in my hand. That's what I want. Now he would have he would have if he wasn't doing interview meetings he would have passed on that. But the main thing was to organize around it. He would have that would have never happened. I think this is a story, and he trusted people. He didn't say, no, 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 like all uh, the other racial organizations had. That's not it, unless you get the whites out and blah, 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 we're not gonna. No, he didn't do that. He listened to them. He trusted them. Uh, it's a story that mirrors uh, Bernard Crick's, uh, your author's belief in, from your country, which we use a lot in our training. Uh, his belief in the affirmative, what he calls the affirmative person. And by that he means, uh, by that phrase he means that you, you have to believe that most people have the capacity and the desire to do the right thing. I found in political parties, whether it be Democratic Party or the Labor Party, but I'm sure it's true for the Republican Party and the Conservatives or, or the Lib Dems left, I don't know, I left the country and, oh, don't worry about them, okay. <laughs> They went with me. I guess they were voted out as illegal aliens or something. Um, but um, uh, you have to believe that, that most people want to do and will do the right thing. You start from that basis, not from another basis. Um, someone asked a question last night, and John, well, if a lot of people get involved, you know, how do you know they won't take over and they won't do this? And they're so worried about what people would do. I said, God, I wish they would get involved. You know, I mean, I'm not, I don't worry about what people will do. I don't start from that premise. Once they get involved, I worry about them a lot. But no, I, 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 um, I don't worry about it. I wish they would get more involved. They're not. They've given up their politicalness because they misunderstand what politics uh, is. Um, in the Industrial Areas Foundation, we have uh, an iron rule. Stephen will know. Jasmine. You never do for somebody what they can do for themselves. Never. And in a political party, they're always talking about, you know, what can we do for them? What's our offer to them? We better do this for them or else they won't vote for us. It's so transactional. As if you can really, you know, like one issue will do something for them. Uh, I think when you, when you have that attitude, there's two reasons for that attitude. One is you basically don't respect and think people can think for themselves. I have to do it for them. They don't know what the heck. Uh, I almost always slip. I'm from New York City and on the street, and I. <laughs> uh, they don't know what the heck uh, you know they're doing. Really? 
so they don't know what they're doing, or uh, they just don't even understand their own self-interest. They are so ignorant that we have to tell them what their self-interest is. Really. In our country, we would say we're much more racially divided than you are. How white of you? <laughs> you you're really telling this black person what he should be doing, what he shouldn't be doing? Uh, my colleague, Ernie Cortez, took so much heat from the far left in San Antonio because he wasn't organizing around race. And he kept all those organizations out. And yet in three years, they had 6,000 people down at City Hall getting drainage for people, while other people were still shouting about, you know, 50, 60 of them, yeah, but what about race? And I remember he told me one woman yelled out, yeah, well, what about my children? First things first, right? Uh, so, you think that people have to be directed from the top. It's very insulting. Um, when, when, when I, when I, what happens then is when I analyze the membership and the makeup, now maybe it's changing uh, with this last election, but when I analyzed the Labor Party when I was here, uh, I feared that its makeup uh, was beginning to mirror the U.S. Democratic Party makeup, which is the Democratic Party and Labor more and more draws from the urban metropolitan areas, the educated class, cosmopolitan elites and racial minorities, which are much larger in our country uh, than in your country. Uh, by the year 2030, our country will be a majority minority population. By 2040, the largest minority will be Asian American. All these right-wing people are so worried about people coming over from Central America. They're coming over on the boats from uh, South Pacific and from Asia. Um, this is why the Democratic Party periodically can win, a, can win an election, because we have an electoral college. So states like New York and California, these large states that represent that demography vote Democratic. But it's also the reason why the Democratic Party struggles to control Congress, because they can't do much in, they don't do much in other parts of the state, in, a, in the country, unless those states are becoming majority Mexican-American, like New Mexico, Arizona. Colorado. Um, that's where the Republicans, because they so right-wing and uh, many of them, and so racially horrible that they keep telling people they're terrible people, and then they get surprised when they don't vote for them. Uh, there's a guy in the United States called John Podesta. I don't know if any of you are familiar with his name. So he was Bill Clinton's uh, chief of staff, and he's a special aide to President Obama. Uh, when John Kerry lost the presidential election, uh, the now Secretary of State, but he ran for president, and he lost, uh, he called together a bunch of very wealthy donors uh, to the Democratic Party for, you know, kind of, why did we lose? Here's why, according to him, they lost. It's because working people do not understand their own self-interest. And so they keep voting for the Republicans because they are lost and they don't get it. And it's frustrating because they don't even get their own self-interest. We tried to show them in, during the campaign what it was. And they voted against not John Kerry. They voted against themselves and their families. <laughs> and we have to figure out now how we're going to convince them 
how to get much smarter about what they're about. <laughs> I, you know, when I heard it, I said, was this guy a brother from another planet? I mean, you know, uh, how condescending and patronizing can you get? But yet, when I was campaigning here, 2012, 2013, I heard a lot of Labor Party people say that about UKIP voters. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Either they were terrible, all terrible racists, so they were just bad people. And you, you could never save them. Or uh, they just didn't understand that the Labor Party was the party of, of them. What is wrong with them? You should have been asking what was wrong with them, but them. <laughs> um, Recently, a very wealthy CEO in the United States. Didn't go too long here. It's about another five, ten minutes. Recently, a, 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 a very powerful chief executive officer in the United States of a major corporation, when asked by a reporter at the end of his talk uh, why he was his strategies were so successful in building this multi-billion-dollar company, and he looked at the reporter and he said, "You know, my answer to that is you're asking the wrong question." He said, culture eats strategy for lunch every day. I would add to that, that culture eats policy for lunch every day. Um, and yet a huge amount, any political party of resources are spent by political parties on the development of policy. Now obviously policy is very important. Unless you just go around and say, you know, I've got two billion best friends and they're going to vote for me because uh, they're all my friends. You know, it's like Donald Trump. You vote for me because I'm the smartest guy ever. I don't know the answer to what I would do, but in three months I will because I'm so smart. <laughs> no, I, you know, get up there like a jerk. Um, although he does. And he's he's leading the polls I know what it says about our country. Um, but think about the amount of, uh, those of you who work in political parties, think of the amount of energy and time and worry that's put into policy and then the focus groups that take place to see if that policy makes, how's it going to play and then you poll on it and then you, you, you parse it to what it might then play what you think will play. Meanwhile, you know, you're not talking to anybody. I mean, it's a focus group, right? So it's not like you're, you, they're a demographic that's how they're chosen. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do any of that either. And I'm just saying it's a lot of money's put into it. Um, you know, again, very transactional. Uh, and the central problem uh, of this and, and the un, and, and, uh, campaign advisors and so forth and, and, and the under, their understanding uh, is that at best all of that only captures one aspect of a person's self-interest. All of you, every human being. I've lived in a small village in Sierra Leone for two years. I've had the honor and privilege of organizing here for two years, or wherever I've been, United States, rural, poor white, African-American, Mexican-American, suburban, you know, communities, uh, everybody has a self-interest. And if you think about the word, it's not, it doesn't mean selfish, self-inter-essay, self-between-being. Everybody has a self-interest. Even if you're a terrible person to, to get something done, even if you're a crazy fascist, you have to have other people around you that agree and will do what you're telling them to do. One part, there are two elements to it. One element is 
everything that you do around your around what required for your self-preservation. A job for money, so that you can have shelter, clothing, food, health care. Be careful with your NHS. Don't become like the United States where people don't have health care. Health care, all those things that are required for self-preservation. Okay? And all of that, all of us have that. Uh, you'll kill to eat if you have to. Um, I, when I was in Sierra Leone, I saw people eat some things that were just really tough to watch. But if you're hungry, you will eat. Um, but there's another really important part of your self-interest uh, of everybody. Again, all that I've ever met across uh, uh, my life. And that's the drive for meaning and recognition. It's in all of us. And it's extremely important because it makes up who we are. Now, uh, the drive, you know, for meaning, you know, you, uh, any of you familiar with Viktor Frankl? Man's Search for Meaning? Well, read that book. I won't go into it because I'm conscious of time. But basically, he formed another strand of uh, psychiatry, which he called logotherapy, which is that he said people become neurotic when they lose their, they have no meaning in their life. Now, he was a Holocaust survivor, and people would come in in the 50s, you know, and they told him his problems. And, you know, he said, I had cognitive dissonance. I lost, my wife was put in a gas chamber. My kids were put in a gas chamber. You got problems because your wife didn't show up at 4 o'clock to pick you up. <laughs> you got a wife. <laughs> Mine's, my, mine is, in the, you know, it was made into a bar of soap. What are you, crazy? You know, he's trying to work with these people and be with them. But what, well, so what is it that's bothering him so much? They got it so good. Well, they had no meaning. They, lost, you know, they had the self-preservation side had come together. They had no they had a lack of meaning in their lives, and they weren't. They were losing attachment to institutions that meant something to them. Um, but here's where uh, this part of self-interest is is, uh, is where people, you know, respond to their culture, their tradition relationships and the voluntary associations that give meaning to your life. Um, well, culture really is, is broadly defined as the symbols, habits, and patterns of behavior that people accept and act on. Whether you like it or not, that's where they are. That's where we all are. You have a great tradition here at Oxford. Maybe you don't like it or there's aspects of it you don't like, but it stands for something. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you don't respect culture uh, and tradition, you are often going to offend people. And sadly, both the far right and the far left don't pay any attention to that. Uh, and so people don't feel very good about how they understand politics. Um, neither element of a person's self-interest trumps the other. Right? If you're hungry, you're hungry, you know. Uh, both are equally important to understand. That's not to say that all traditions are morally sound or make sense for today's life. There are some traditions I saw in what they did with young girls, you know, by the time they became puberty was horrible. So that's a, you know, I'm not, you know, that's a terrible tradition. But traditions can evolve over time and action. Right? And uh, but you can't just walk into a village where I don't know anybody and say, are you guys barbarians? Are you jerks? 
you got to get into relationship and then have some trust and then say, you really think this is right, what you're doing? Cutting these girls at 12 years old and 13 years old, you know, what is that all about? You know, I don't get it, explain it to me. <laughs> They'd explain it and I'd say, I, I don't get that. What if I went up and just stabbed you? Is that okay? <laughs> well, if I hadn't had a relationship and I just came in as a white guy and this Sarah Leone villain just say, what are you guys, barbarians or something? You're just doing it. Well, what if I stab you? How do you feel? What if I cut off your penis, huh? I would, I would have been killed. You know? <laughs> but at least we got to a place of having conversation. Not, I didn't say it all changed because I was there, but I like to think that a few people began to think about, this is not a good tradition. So I'm not, I'm not you know, uh, saying that all tradition is good. Um, just quickly, I, 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 at, the end of a, at the end of a talk I gave when I was first here, uh, a guy at, uh, to a labor group, uh, a guy raised his hand, I said, yeah, and he said, uh, it was interesting how he put it, as a seemingly bright guy, I wonder how good my talk was, as a seemingly uh, bright fellow, excuse me, uh, how can you believe in such hocus pocus? I was talking about religion and God. Well, you know, uh, you could have asked it in a different kind of way. Uh, you know, intellectual snobbery, insults, uh, disrespectful attitudes towards people's deeply felt beliefs and culture and tradition doesn't generally win the day. Um, so I, I, I was telling uh, Tim at, uh, when we had a cup of tea right before, you know, during the Vietnam War, you know, I was a young person, I was out there protesting. But a lot of the people who protest would bring a flag, an American flag, and fly it upside down. Or on their jumper, they would have the flag upside down. Now, my father, who was a working guy, and uh, wasn't sure about the war, and, you know, people have a right to protest. After all, his whole generation fought in World War II, and that gave them the right. But it pissed him off when he saw the flag flying upside down. And I remember him saying, you can be against your government, but not against your country. And they lost him. They lost him. Even though he was open and believed in their right to protest. After all, the son had been in jail. Hell, what else could he do? But, um, uh, you know, you, you don't do things like that. Uh, you don't refuse to sing the national anthem. I don't know how, you know, the new labor leader is going to get on. You don't do that. You have to have love of a country. You don't threaten to wear a white poppy instead of a red poppy. Obama would be, if he ever did that, you know, we put our hand on our heart to say the Pledge of Allegiance and look at the flag, or when the flag comes by, you put your hand on your heart. If he didn't do that, he'd be impeached. They would find reasons to impeach him. And it wouldn't just be conservatives. It'd be people like my father who were, you know, could go either way. Uh, so I'd like to conclude. Uh, with a quote from Bernard Crick and a very quick story that exemplifies what I think politics is. Crick said, there is nothing spontaneous about politics. It depends on deliberate and continuous individual activity. Diverse groups hold together. Because after all, that's a lot of what democracy is, uh, holding diverse groups together. Because they practice politics. So real quickly, uh, I keep saying that, but I will finish uh, with this story. Um, I was organizing in Boston. It's called the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, which already when I told them the name of it, I lost half of the 
Labor Party. Interfaith? What the hell? You mean that churches is putting that? But no. Well, it's mosques, churches, and other groups. Anyway, I'm being exaggeration. There are many people in the Labor Party that appreciate religion, and even if they don't believe, they're very respectful. Um, so we're organizing, uh, and it's very white, the organization. I came in four years afterwards, and I went to the first leadership meetings, 21 people and only one person of color. And when they asked me what I thought about the meeting at the end of it, I said, I felt like I was in a snowstorm. They said, what do you mean it's in the spring? I said, so white. It's the same thing I told Ed after he asked me my impression of the first uh, party conference. I said the same thing. I feel like I'm in a snowstorm. He said, there's snow in England. I said, no, there's snow in there. I counted 30 people out of like 5,000 of color. Where are they? Oh, well, we did much, he told me, this is true, we, and he meant it. We did much better than last year when we had about 20. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right, but you know, you're not representing the country. I mean, there must be somebody. Dragging the waiter, you know, anything. You know. Um, so GBIO has been organized, was too white. And so I worked hard to bring in this large Haitian population in Boston. And a, and a decent-sized Latino and African-American population. Not a majority, but together they're a majority. But anyway, they weren't at all in the organization. So I went out and we you know, worked really hard. I, I, I decided to live in Boston two weeks a month. I have a very forgiving wife. Every other month here, I think she likes to get rid of me. <laughs> uh, and um, I really worked hard. And slowly we began to bring in African-Americans, Haitians, Latinos. That when they came in from church, they were much more evangelical. And it was when the whole issue of gay marriage was exploding. And it exploded in Massachusetts. It was the first state to take this on. And, and in, uh, in Boston, I don't know if any of you in Boston. There's a, in the center of the city, there's a big park called the Commons. And that's people gather, and the state legislature's there, and all kinds of history. And, Paul Revere and all these people were buried there and whatever. But then people give speeches and the comments, right? Taken from here, right? Where people could get up and talk on soapboxes and say whatever uh, was on their mind. And I, you know, I'm just finally getting these uh, Haitians and African Americans and Latinos and men. You know, and we're not around, uh, you know, religion. We're, we're you know, we're, we're, we're agreeing that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're Jewish, we're Muslim, we're black, we're white, this and that. Whatever tradition we come out of, we all need better housing. We all need better schools, you know, so, right? Uh, and we all respect each other's place for the country. So this thing with gay rights happens, and I, I go, to, go to sleep that night, and the, the court had ruled. The court was about to rule on whether or not in Massachusetts it was going to be legal for gay people to get married. And I wake up the next morning, and in the Boston Globe, which is their major paper, on the front page are these angry people separated by a barricade, a rope, in the commons, where they're yelling at each other about you know, the ruling that's supposed to come down that day. On one side of the rope is the president of our organization who's gay. And he is screaming at another group of people were three, three of the pastors that I just brought in, <laughs> screaming at him. You know, I'm really angry, you know. And I said to myself, you know, Parma, like, holy shit, two, two, you know, one full year of work, right down the tube. 
on an issue that we, you know, what are, I don't even get it personally. I mean, you know, what's it bother you for now? But you know, for them it was important, right? And if I had that attitude, that would have taken them away. I really told them I think, but you know, chill out with you. <laughs> but it meant a lot to them because for many of those people, gay marriage is a sacred, you know, it's a sacrament. And how do you understand it? You know, this is man and woman. Okay, but it's very important to them. So I don't mean it. I don't, I don't agree with it, but I don't demean it. And we don't involve ourselves in our organizations in stem cell and abortion and all that. But I figure the organization's over. So I call a meeting, they all come and they're angry, you know, they're sitting there. And, <laughs> uh, and the president of the organization says, I don't think I can, I, I think I need to resign. We're all, we're right away, we're falling apart. I think we need to resign. We don't agree we're going to work on health care. And eventually we did. Massachusetts is the only state in the country that has universal health care. And that was when Mitt Romney was um, governor. You have to be able to work with people. But at any rate, um, I'm going to resign. And a rabbi gets up and has a, like a, a free and open synagogue, which means you know, it's open to gay people. My brother's gay, and if this is the way it's going to be, uh, I resign. And then one of the Haitian evangelical guys gets up and says, well, I'm going to resign before you resign. <laughs> <laughs> we go around the room, and it's just like polarized, dead. Everybody's quitting, unless the other person changes their mind, which is not going to happen. So eventually, uh, gets to the point, uh, they were all you know, kind of out of control. You know? So I said, OK, OK, OK. I haven't talked for about 40 minutes. I said, OK, OK. Um, if this is the way it is, let's end this effort. But just remember that all the people in your congregations who you told me couldn't get chemotherapy and die because they didn't have health care, remember, Reverend, you told me that? That's why you want to come in? You feel terrible? Then to some of the you know, people that were supportive of gay marriage, remember you told me your uncle or whomever can't get you know, treated right now for whatever disease. I don't remember all the different diseases. Remember you told me your children can't get? Fine, let them die. Let's call for a, a, a vote now to end the organization. Who votes to kill the children? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll put it that way. I said, well, what is it? Who else has the strength right now to do something about it? Somebody make a motion to kill the children. So I said, look, we built this on relationality. We're not going to change each other's mind on this. But the lack of respect that you have for each other is horrific. So here's what I propose. It's within our tradition. Each person here from the other side has to make has to sit down right now for 45 minutes and do an individual meeting. Rediscover each other. And then we're going to have a series of house meetings. First, usually can't I can't dictate, but they were so who wants to kill kids? <laughs> They're their own children. <laughs> the, the, those of you who come from you know congregations that are open and whatnot? You bring three gay people together at, your, at, some, at one of their homes. Uh, you can get them to do that, and you invite three people from this other congregation for a meal and a house meeting, so they get to know each other. Well, I'm not going to. No one's going to change on this, but you don't have to demonize each other, and we can figure out what can we work on together, like health for our kids. 
They did it. We had a whole series of house meetings between gay people and straight people. Uh, th and three years later, we won the first, the only state to have universal health care. Um, that's politics. Hard, difficult, time-consuming, respectful of people's traditions, of people's beliefs. But because of the relational bonds, uh, they were willing to do that. So, as, uh, I'll finish with this quote. As George Loomis, who was a philosopher in the United, in the United States, uh, wrote in an essay in Democracy uh, magazine uh, uh, in our country in 1982, he said, political virtue is the commitment to, knowledge of, and ability to stand for the whole, and is a necessary condition for democracy. Thank you.